Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, or you can just read it in the bulletin. The whole text is printed for you. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. We're only going to focus on the first two verses, however, really only the second verse. And if you know your Bibles, you know that uh, we are coming to that text of, in the Scriptures where the Ten Commandments are revealed. And so if I tell you that uh, Moses, by his, his transition in chapter 19 and the vocabulary he uses throughout this section, indicates to us this is the pinnacle of his story. This is the high point of his narrative, even though there's a there's a stronger, an even stronger punchline coming later on. But Moses is indicating to us this is a real high point of his narrative. If you, knowing that this contains the Ten Commandments, and I say it's the high point of the narrative, your heart may be sinking. Because maybe you have uh, this conception of Christianity, like I had in the early years of my faith, that, that Christianity is a, is a system of don'ts. That it's a religion of, of rules. And that uh, God sets up these commandments uh, just to kind of set you up for failure. He keeps a checklist and He gives these ten, ten commandments that nobody can keep perfectly. And so He sets us up for failure from the very beginning. And your heart is sinking saying, this is what I dreaded hearing all my life. The confirmation that Christianity is a religion of don'ts a religion of do-nots, and you say, I feel rejected enough as I am. I feel enough anxiety as it is. I'm afraid enough. And now you're confirming that I should be afraid of God and that He too has rejected me. But if that is your conception, then it's the wrong conception. Christianity is not about rules. It is not, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, Paul says, not about rules of do's and don'ts. If, there, if you have this dichotomy in your mind between law and gospel, between law and grace, then you have a dichotomy that is not found in Scripture. It's all grace and it's all gospel. Could it be that even the Ten Commandments reveal to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sure your heart is as eager to be refreshed by that good news as mine, so let's turn with expectant hearts to verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless. 
who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come. He has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. O Lord, would you open our eyes to see beautiful things in your law, which is gospel. Present to us afresh in a compelling way the good news. And if there is anyone within the sound of my voice who has yet to receive this good news, to commit his or her life to Jesus Christ and find the joy therein, I pray that this would be the day, even the moment of their salvation. For the rest of us, encourage us with abundant waters of life. In Jesus' name we pray it, God's people said together, amen. Why is it that we have that negative, that negative impression of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words as they're literally called in Scripture? <clears throat> I think in part it's because we, we have this idea formed by the artistic representation of the, the common artistic representation of the Ten Commandments. We, we see it in, in, etched in granite. Uh, in, in courthouses or uh, public places, and, and, or we see artistic representations of them in books. And what do we usually see? We see two tables of two tablets, two stone tablets, rounded edges at the top, and then there's one, two, three, four, five, uh, on the, uh, four on the side and six on the other side. But do you know that if, if that is the only representation of the Ten Commandments we see, if, we, if all we see labeled the, ten, the law of God is those ten do-nots, then we see a false representation of the true faith. We see a false representation of Christianity. Without this preface that we read in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, 
you shall have no other gods. Without that preface, we see a false religion. We see a, the, 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 the presentation of a religion that says, keep these and I will love you. However, when the preface is there, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. When the preface is there, we hear this, you are loved, therefore keep my commandments. Without the preface, we have a religion without redemption. Without the preface, we have Christianity without Christ. With this preface, we have the foundation for the whole of Scripture. I'm not going to preach on each of the commandments. I don't need to because we've heard them preached to us so well by our pastors in the evening service or the course of our Westminster Shorter Catechism study. So I'm only preaching here on the preface, and then I'll touch briefly on each of the commandments before the end of the sermon. But that, that, that foundation, that, that grace is the motivation, is the empowerment for doing all of God's law is, is not a novel thing. It's not a new idea. This is the way Moses preached, obviously. He didn't launch right into the commandments. It's the way Jesus preached. It's the way the apostles preached. It's the way the the early church preached. This is the way the Reformation preached. This is the way the awakeners in the first great awakening of our country preached. Thinking about that the other day, I remembered a young man named David Brainerd. David Brainerd uh, was born in 1718. He lived only 29 years. He grew up in a, in a church where he would have been called a Christian. He would have thought himself to be a Christian, but it was the presentation of Christianity was a list of do's and don'ts. And if you do these things, if you don't do other things, then you are a Christian. It was a, it was a sterile faith. It was a, it, it was, it was a depressing faith. And then, and then he heard the likes of Gilbert Tennant and other awakeners preach, and he realized that Christ came to die for his sins, that Christ came to empower him, to draw him to himself, to unite him to himself. And in response to that grace, he could live a new life. He, he gave himself to the ministry. He wanted to give, become a, a gospel minister, so he went off to Yale, and he was a very impassioned new believer. And one of his professors, who was not a Christian, overheard uh, Brainerd referring to his uh, professor as something like he, he didn't have any more grace than a brick, uh, meaning he was unconverted. It was true, but probably not the most respectful thing to say. The professor heard him. They kicked him out of Yale, and then they banned him from the ministry forever, that is, from ministry in traditional churches. But he had this gospel fire burning in him. He had to give it away, so he looked around, and he he said he, was going to, he wanted to take the gospel to his neighbors who were Native Americans. And for the next four years, he, he took the gospel to Native Americans who lived in New Jersey and New York and eastern Pennsylvania. And the Lord did a great work in him. The, the Lord continues to work through David Brainerd, even though he lived only 29 years. Through his journals, people still find inspiration and find what it's like to live in grace. But in those journals, Brainerd explains why his mission was successful among those Native Americans. I have two friends who are descended from those 
those original converts. One of them lives here in, in Memphis. They continue to love Christ. He, he explains in the journals why his mission succeeded, why so many other missions failed. It was that he preached the gospel first while others preach that, you know, if you will change your manners, if you'll change your morality, then God will love you, and then I'll tell you the rest of the story. Here's the way Brainerd tells it. He says, no matter where he was preaching, no matter what the topic, it all led him to Christ. So if I taught the commands of God and showed our violation of them, this brought me in the most easy and natural way to speak of and recommend the Lord Jesus Christ. As one who had magnified the law we had broken and who was become the end for our righteousness to everyone that believes. He went on to say that the tribes eagerly obeyed God's commandments not because I had driven them to the performance of these duties by a frequent inculcating of them, but because they had felt the power of God's Word upon their heart, were made sensible of their sin and misery and thence could not but pray and comply with everything they knew was duty from what they felt within themselves. It's what the old preachers said, preaching the first and only command, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and all the other commands come with it. Here in our, in our passage, in this preface, we have three very gracious reasons for why we must obey the commandments of God, why we should feel compelled to obey them. The first one is He is the Lord. Second is He is our God. The third is He is the Redeemer. The first, the Lord. Because He is the Lord, we must obey. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, you notice how Lord is spelled. It has it's, uh, it's all uppercase letters, even though the, the next three letters are a little smaller. That indicates in your English Bible the holy name of God, Yahweh. It's the name by which God revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush. Remember when, when He says, uh, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And uh, He says, and, yet, and, and whom should I, should I say, sent me here? Will you tell them I am has sent you? I am that I am. It's a derivative of Yahweh, or Yahweh is a derivative of that verb, I am that I am. And by that he was saying, there are no gods like me, no one to compare to me. I am self-sufficient. I am self-existent. And then furthermore, he's saying by the burning bush, a bush that, that, that burned but it was not consumed, I am the creator. I have made this bush and I'm the one that keeps it from being consumed. By implication, then he's saying, if I'm the creator, you are born into a covenant relationship with me. Every human being is born into a covenant relationship with God just by being created. And every one of us then should respond to Him with gratitude for giving us existence. But we don't. All of us like sheep have turned astray. Each has turned to his own way. We grow up with, with this habit of rebelling against God, rebelling against our Creator. I was thinking of when Brett was telling his, his story about uh, breaking his mother's prized possession, that, 
that uh, I did something even worse when I got my first BB gun for Christmas. My mother said, don't shoot it inside, but I just couldn't resist dove hunting. And, the, and the, the, my mother had these porcelain doves that she'd save for months to get, and I took the wing right off of one. It was an excellent shot, and that didn't go so well for me as it did for Brett, but, but my, I, his, his was mostly an accident. Mine was intentional. Even knowing how precious these things were to my mother, I shot the wing off of it. No one had to teach me that. We grow up in a broken, rebellious relationship with our Creator. So the very first thing that has to be said before we go any farther is that there is no hope of your ever keeping the commands of God. There is no motivation for you ever to keep the commands of God. There is no promise of you ever becoming a friend. You'll always be an enemy of the law until you believe on Jesus. As David Bowen preached so well last week, the Philippian jailer says, what am I to do to be saved? And the only answer David shows us from the text is believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe. It's to receive Him. It's to believe that He paid all of the price. It is to believe that He's the only one who can make us obedient. The old preachers, as I said, said believe. That's the first command. That's the only thing you can do. And even that must be attained by grace. But that command, believing on the Lord Jesus, includes all of the other commands, meaning it's then that Christ will empower you to keep His commands. Now, having said that, some of you are asking the question, well, if, 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 if all we do is if, if we believe in the Lord Jesus and we're saved, then what function does the law have in our lives? And why are we even talking about the law? Why are we talking about the Ten Commandments? We have that confusion by misunderstanding some passages of Scripture. For instance, we can think that the Old Testament is about law, specifically the writings of Moses. That's about law or legalism, that we earn our righteousness and our love by God by keeping His commandments. And the New Testament is about grace. We can form that opinion from a verse like John chapter 1, verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. The law was for Moses, grace and truth from Jesus. How can it be any clearer than that? Law versus grace. But we have to read every verse of Scripture in context, and the verse just above explains the verse that follows. In verse 16 of John chapter 1, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law we receive from Moses, grace and truth from Jesus. John is not saying law is pitted against grace, but rather there is even more grace revealed in Jesus Christ than there was in Moses. Grace was revealed through Moses, even through the law. And now there's incredibly more grace revealed of who God is. We've discovered that in our study of Exodus. Every page we've turned, every passage we've studied, we've found the grace of the gospel there, the revelation ultimately of Jesus Christ. Law is not pitted against the gospel or grace. The other misunderstanding we can have is that, that, uh, that, that the law only functions for one thing, 
that the law only leads us, only drives us to the end of ourselves, shows us our guilt, and then in desperation we reach out and grab Christ, and then we have no need for the law anymore. We understand that from passages like, or misunderstand that from passages in Galatians about the law being a tutor, or Paul saying in Galatians 5 that, that those who are led by the Spirit are not led by the law. But in those contexts, Paul is talking to people who still think that they can earn their righteousness by keeping the law. And so he's, he's pointedly saying that is not the function of the law, never has been. And if you're using the law that way, it's not right. The, the, the law does do three things the Bible teaches us. It restrains evil in the world generally so that redemption is possible. It does drive us to the end of ourselves and shows us our moral bankruptcy and forces us to cry out to Christ. But the third use of that, of the law, is that once we have been united to Christ, when we've believed on Him and He's joined His life to ours, ours to His, He graciously gives us the law to guide us. John Calvin said, the law may be on the one hand a whip to drive us to Christ, but once we've embraced Christ, it's a lamp to guide our feet. Now, that takes us to the next point, that God has given us His law. He's given His people the Ten Commandments and all the implications of them for our good. Because He is the Lord... And because He is our God, there's the covenant name of God. When God says, this will be my covenant with you, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And then He explains that, that the law that He was revealing to Moses was not to ruin their lives, to restrict their lives, to make their lives more difficult, but rather, he says in places like Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, I'm giving the law so that life would go well with you, and so that when people look at you, the other nations look at you, they'll say, what kind of people has a God like that to give them those kinds of laws? And then he says in, in places like Deuteronomy 30 and Deuteronomy 5, I'm giving you my laws so that you will live long and prosper. Deuteronomy 32, I'm giving you my laws that will be to you words of life. Exodus chapter 19, we studied in verses 5 and 6. I'm, uh, I, 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 I want you, you're my treasured possession. And I'm giving you my laws that you might be my kings and priests. I'm not making you slaves. I'm not making you vassals. I'm not, I'm not treading you underfoot with my laws. I am making, I'm dignifying you as kings and priests by showing you how I intended for you to live. Well, let me come at that with a couple of illustrations. First of all, that that God graciously gives us His law. He, he is our, demonstrates Himself to be our gracious God by giving laws that preserve us from harm. He, he has prohibitions against things that he, he knows will harm us as our Father. It's, these are household rules. Now, it, one of my favorite authors is Dorothy Sayers, a, a southern novelist and 
and she also happened to be a Christian. And she, she, she came at explaining the moral law of God this way. She distinguished between the law of the stop sign and the law of fire. Now, she meant by the law of stop sign human laws and uh, the law of fire, the laws of God. But instead of the stop sign, let's say the speed limit, the law of the speed limits. And she said, so, so traffic engineers can look at a stretch of road and they'll say, this speed limit's going to be 35. And then later they decide, a new group of engineers says, no, it's going to be 55. And then later another group will say, no, it's going to be 25. And here the fines are going to fluctuate as well. Those human laws are made for different reasons. Sometimes they're capricious. Sometimes they're, they're inexplicable. They're supposed to be generally for our good, but those laws are, you, you never quite know. You, you can't absolutely depend on them. And, the, and the, the result is going to be whatever the fine is set to be. That's fluctuating too. But on the other hand, there's the law of the fire, of fire. Put your hand in fire, it burns it. But suppose... Uh, the Supreme Court or a president or the legislature said, you know, we're going to make a law that fire can no longer burn you because it's so inconvenient. It's not fair for fire to have that much power, so we're going to make it illegal for fire to burn you. And it, it makes fireworks shows go a lot longer than they need to be. You know, if you could just hold the fireworks there instead of running away from them, lighting them, just hold them. Everything will be fine. It's not allowed to burn you. It doesn't matter how many legislatures, if all the legislatures of all the world said fire can no longer burn you, it's still going to burn you. Dorothy Sayers said this, the moral law of God is like the law of fire. You never break God's laws, you just break yourself on them. God can't reduce the penalty because the penalty for breaking the law is bound up in the law itself. God weaves these laws into creation, these prohibitions, because He knows these will harm you. Don't do this. It will dehumanize you to have an affair. Don't do this. This will dehumanize you to, to, to have sex outside marriage. Don't do this. Don't steal. It'll dehumanize you. Don't worship other gods. It will make you less than human. It's beneath your dignity. But on the positive side, God gives us laws as well so that life will go well with us, so that life will flourish. So, so let me illustrate it this way. When I was a um, a rather young husband and father, I would have been discipled well in the ways of manhood, which includes never reading an instruction manual. You never do that. It's just wrong as a man to do that. And uh, so I got my first, uh, my first push lawnmower, and I took it out of the box, and I threw the instruction manual to the side, and I put the handle together, I filled it up with gas, put the oil in it, cranked it right up. See, I didn't need the instructions at all. So I did push it, and I thought, you know, this, this, uh, this, these new, these new uh, lawnmowers are, are heavier than they used to be. And especially when you're pushing them uphill and downhill, that's quite a workout. They're really concerned for our cardiovascular health, these new lawnmower manufacturers. But there was a red handle on this lawnmower that I couldn't figure out. And so I put up the lawnmower for the day, and then under the under my covers at night with just a flashlight, I looked at the instruction manual so nobody could see me. And I looked up that 
red handle. And it said the red handle is for self-propulsion. Self-propelled. You could pull that handle and it would drive itself. Amazing. Instruction manual is not given to hinder my freedoms. The instruction manual was given to make it better, to make it easier. Not to make it perfect. There's still labor in it. But it was intended for my good. And the Word of God is given for your good. Commandments given out of the love of God who says, I want to be your God for you and you for me. Well, the final reason the law is given, he said, or we should, we should obey it, is that, is that He is our Redeemer. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Of course, this is ultimately pointing to Christ who brought us out of, out of our Egypt and out of our bondage to slavery. We read about it today. We confessed it, that He, he transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. But even the Old Testament believers got this idea, basically, in, in rough lines, that God was going to provide salvation for them by the sacrifice of one who didn't owe it. Remember, we made that point when we studied the, the, the Passover, that, that it would be the blood of an innocent victim that would, that would, that would result in the, the liberation of the Israelites, the blood of an innocent lamb. That a firstborn son would only be redeemed by the blood of an innocent lamb. And we made the point there that God was teaching His people that He had always sacrificed, at least in His mind, His Son. Because the Bible says, a strange thing in Revelation 13, He says, from the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God has been slain from the foundation of the world. There has never been a time in God's mind that He has not been losing His Son for us. And so even while He's bringing the people out of, out of Egypt, He was making that sacrifice. And even now after He's made the sacrifice, His Son has paid for the sins of those who receive it. And He's brought Him back from the dead and He's brought Him to His side. He still sees those scars on His Son every day and He remembers he remembers that traumatic detail of Jesus saying from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God has always sacrificed personally so that He might make you His child. It means then that that, that we can't look at any law of Scripture, any one of the Ten Commandments, without seeing looming large in the background the blood of Jesus Christ sacrificed for us, God's Son sacrificed for us. How can we not obey that God? How can we not believe that every commandment is intended for our good? Let me just run through the Ten Commandments rapidly and, and make that point to you because the Ten Commandments, they form the moral spine of Scripture. 
know, we make these distinctions of the laws in the Bible. Sometimes it confuses us. There is one category of laws called ceremonial laws. Those were the, the sacrifices and the, the holy days and so forth. And those all pointed to the sacrificial work of Christ. And when Christ paid that sacrifice, those laws went away. And then there's another set of laws we, we call the civil laws that had to do with the formation of, of Israel as a theocracy with God directly as their king. And, and God set up a theocracy only for a limited time in order to teach us what the church is to be and what the eternal kingdom of Christ will be like. And when He had made that point, he, that, that theocracy went away, and those civil laws went away. But even behind those, those civil laws and those ceremonial laws lie the, the fabric, the spine of the Ten Commandments. Those, even those laws that we say are no longer applicable, even those laws are applications of the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, every ethical command of the New Testament is ultimately traced back to the Ten Commandments. It's an, it's an exposition of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus made it very simple. He said, you're really, there are only two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the, those are the commandments. We can see in the New Testament that every one of the Ten Commandments is also, just because, just so that there's no question, every one of the Ten Commandments is repeated or alluded to in some way. And with Christ clearly in view, it makes the obedience to all the commandments very different. So let me just quickly explain that to you. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus repeats that by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Who would want any other God than this one who has come to us and says, I am going to be your way through my sacrifice to eternal life. I'm never going to tell you a falsehood. I'll only tell you the truth, and I'm coming to give you life, not death. Second commandment is don't make any graven images. Don't make idols. John says in 1 John chapter 5, little children, keep yourself from idols who are in his or her right mind would ever choose an idol, one made out of stone or one that you create of, out of a material object or, or one that's in your heart or a practice? Who in his right mind would ever choose to worship an idol that only demands, never gives back? Who would choose an idol over a father who says, you're my little children? Likewise, the third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Jesus said, we repeated it earlier, this is the way you ought to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're our almighty God in heaven, but you've become our Father. Who would not want to honor His name? The fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day, keep a day of rest. This is the one that Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so I insist, I'm going to provide seven days of, of provisions for you for six days of labor, and I insist that you rest, that you be refreshed. 
that you be refreshed spiritually by worship and that you're refreshed spirit, uh, physically by resting from work and you let others do the same. What a kind thing of God. And honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment, which extends to all authorities. And Paul repeated that in Colossians when he says, or Ephesians, he says, little children, obey your parents in the Lord. The the only reason, no one deserves inherently to be obeyed, but when we obey others who are our authorities, even if they're not worthy of it, even if they're bad supervisors, we have an opportunity to say thank you to the Lord by obeying. Sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Jesus said, even if you are angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. Who would not want to obey a God who is not only in the business of preserving lives from death, but He wants to give dignified and peaceful life within relationships to His image bearers? Seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Jesus said, I tell you, here's the, here, there's, there's more to that commandment even if, you, if a man looks lustfully on a woman, he has committed adultery in his heart. Who would not want to obey a God who guards marriage, knowing this is the only way to be fulfilled sexually? Or, or who would not want to obey a God who is so caring and protective for His daughters made in His image that He tells men, keep your eyes where they ought to be. Don't degrade them. Don't objectify them. A protective Father. The Eighth commandment, do not steal. Paul said, uh, let him who steals steal no longer but work at something with his hands that he might have something to give. We don't have to debase ourselves by stealing and grabbing like orphans. He has given us work to do. He'll provide something not only to provide for ourselves, but we'll have enough to give. The ninth commandment, do not lie. Don't lie about one another to one another. Paul says, but let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that word which has never lied to you. The Tenth Commandment, do not covet. James says in chapter 4, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You should remember that the Holy Spirit jealously guards you with His love. How could we sin against one who loves us so protectively? See what a difference it makes when when each commandment is seen through Christ because He's our Redeemer, because He's our God, because He is our Lord. Desmond Doss was was, um, convicted that he, in World War II, he was convinced he he should help his country in the war effort. But for biographical as well as, uh, as well as religious reasons, he had the conviction that he should not take another human life. So he refused to hold a weapon. And he also believed that he should not work on the Sabbath day. He went to volunteer. He explained his convictions, and they, they couldn't quite figure that out. They said, you're a conscientious con- uh, objector. He said, no, I'm a, I'm a conscientious cooperator. I want to... I want to participate, but I will not kill. I won't work on the Sabbath day. They reluctantly let him in as a medic stationed in Japan. 
His unit was given an impossible, thought to be an impossible task of to scale a 400-foot jagged cliff in Okinawa and, and uh, take out the, the pillboxes on the top, the, the machine gun turrets and, and the booby traps, and they were to take that, that stronghold. It was thought to be impossible. It was, a, it was such a jagged cliff, it was called Hacksaw Ridge. Desmond Doss climbed up with the rest of his, his unit. They were mown down. The order was given to retreat. Doss refused. He went from body to body of his fallen comrades. He, the ones who had, who had made fun of him when he would pray, they would throw shoes at him. They, they tortured him psychologically and emotionally. His captain, Jack Glover, begged to have him transferred out of his unit. He says, he's a nuisance to me. Get him out of here. Nobody would take him. He went from person to person. Those same people tied a rope around his waist, he dragged those bodies over to the edge, he tied it to a rock and left them down one by one by one. When he got home, he said he, he saved only 50. He said he would, he, would, he, would, he would pray as he would go from one, Lord, help me to save one more, just one more. And he said, I saved 50. The people on the scene said, no, he saved 125. He agreed to a compromise. You can tell the history books that I saved 75. Over the course of 12 hours, he saved 125 men who all made fun of him, who all mocked him, who all viewed him as a nuisance. As Captain Jack Glover said, he is the bravest man alive, an irony of ironies. He saved me too. No one could resist loving, admiring, thanking Private First Class Desmond T. Doss after that. And how can we not love and obey the Savior who is our Lord, who is our God, and is our Redeemer? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to seek and to save us. Perverse and foolish, we've tried to run away from you, but you pursued us and gently laid us on your shoulders and brought us safely home. Help us to live our lives with contagious joy and obedience. And for anyone listening this morning who has not yet bowed the knee to this Jesus, may this be the day of salvation and the first day of sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen.